All right. Well, as you know, we've been in this series uh, for several weeks now called Prayers That Made a Difference. And in it, we've been looking at uh, people in the Bible who prayed key prayers at important points that moved the hand of God, that made a difference in the situation. The last few weeks, we've been looking at Elijah. Boy, and that's been a roller coaster of a ride, Elijah's prayer life, right? And so this week, we're going to be really switching gears and looking at, at an entirely different kind of prayer that made a difference. It's the prayer of repentance. It's how you talk to God, how you relate to God when you've done something that is wrong. How many of you have ever done something that is wrong? All right, look at all you honest people out there. That's great. And uh, to do that, we're going to be looking at Psalm 51, if you want to turn there. And uh, uh, at the beginning of Psalm 51, it says this. In the title, it says this. We don't usually read the title, but this morning we're reading the title. It says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. All right, so this title... It tells us that the psalm was written by David after he had been confronted by this prophet Nathan about his sin. And the account of all of that is in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And so to get some background, we're going to look at that a little bit. And, uh, uh, and then uh, so we'll be able to understand his prayer a little bit better. So let me just summarize that for you. Okay, so in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we find David, he's in his palace. And his armies are away at war. And one night he's walking around on the roof of his palace and he looks down from this, this height and he sees this beautiful woman bathing. And her name is Bathsheba. And as it turns out, she's the wife of a man named Uriah, who is one of David's best and most loyal fighting men. And he's Uriah, at this point, he's off with the armies fighting David's battles for him. And it says that David desired her and so in verse 4, it says that then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now, that was very sinful. It was sinful against Bathsheba. It was sinful against Uriah. And it was sinful against God. David uh, broke God's commandments here. He broke the commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. And he broke the commandment, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. And so David is guilty before God here. But it gets even worse. Going on in verse 5, it says that the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. All right, so now this is a huge problem for David. Bathsheba's pregnant. Her husband Uriah is out on the battlefield. But eventually, he's going to find out that she's pregnant and know that it wasn't him. And so he's not going to be happy about it. And in that culture... He could have her stoned to death. And the only way that she could really probably prevent that from happening is to reveal who the father was. And you might ask, well, what's the big deal, right? David is the king. He's sovereign, right? His word goes. He can do anything he wants. So what's the big deal? Well, David's problem is that if this story gets out, he risks losing the loyalty of all of his fighting men. Because when you're a commanding officer and you've got people out in the battlefield risking their lives, uh, following your orders because they're loyal to you, one great way of losing that loyalty is to do that kind of thing with someone who's out there following your commands, risking their lives. And so he's in danger of losing the loyalty of his men over this. And so David, he concocts this scheme to cover it up. He has Uriah sent to him under the pretense of wanting some more information about how the war is going. And, but his real goal is to get Uriah to go home and spend the night at his house. And then later on, when it's revealed that Bathsheba is pregnant, Uriah, and everyone else would think that it was Uriah's baby. But Uriah 
He throws a monkey, monkey wrench into all of that, right? Out of loyalty to his fellow soldiers, he decides not to go home, but instead spends the night with the servants in the palace. And, of course, David, he's alarmed by this. And so he, he has him come again that night, and this time he gets him drunk, which is another sin because the Bible says what? Drunkenness is a sin. And the goal is to get Uriah to spend the night at his house. But again, Uriah, he, he, instead of going home, he spends the night with the servants in the palace. And now David is desperate. And so he comes up with another plan to cover all of this up. In the morning, he's going to be sending Uriah back to the front. And he pens this letter to Joab, who's the commander of his armies. And it says this in verse 15. It says, in it he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Now that is really sinful. I mean, David in essence ordered the unjustified secret execution of one of his most loyal fighting men just to cover up his sin. And, and Uriah here, he's unwittingly carrying his own death warrant with him back to the battlefield. And, you know, at first, this plan seemed to work. Joab carried out his plans. Uriah uh, died in battle. David took Bathsheba to be his wife. Everyone would think that the child was his, and, and no one would be the wiser, right? Well, God was the wiser. You can't hide your sin from God. You may be able to hide it from other people. You know, even if you're the king, even if you think you're really powerful and you can cover things up, right? Uh, you can't hide sin from God. And so in verse 27, it says this. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now, now he has this whole mound of sins piling up. He coveted his neighbor's wife. He committed adultery. He dealt dishonestly with Uriah. He got him drunk, and he manipulated him, uh, and finally had him murdered. I mean, there's a lot of guilt here, and God's about to deal with it. He's about to bring it into the light. Look at chapter 12, beginning of verse 1. It says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. All right, now, Nathan Nathan could have gone all, right, all in, all prophet-like, right, and, and just bust in there and said, hey, hey, this is what you've done, and it was wrong, and it was sinful before God, now repent. He could have done that. But I, I think that God really wanted David to really sense and feel the full weight and the full emotion of all of the wrong and all the pain and all the suffering that he had caused due to his sin, right? And so he tells him this emotional story instead. Verses 1 to 4, it says this. It says, when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and another poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, it grew up with him and his children, and shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. All right, so now Nathan really has David on the hook here. So, because look at David's response. Going on, he says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay that for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And then he goes on and continues with more consequences that are going to result because of all this. And my goodness, wow, this is pretty intense, don't you think? I mean, if you can, put yourself there for a moment. Maybe you're one of the guards uh, standing there. And And you're there hearing all of this going down. The prophet comes in and he just boldly confronts the king, looks him right in the eye and says, you are the man, you're guilty, now repent. I mean, my goodness, what are you thinking? I mean, um, people don't come in and, co- and talk to the king like that, right? And in that moment, how's the king going to respond? I mean, he's the king. His word is final. He could have De- uh, Nathan executed right there on the spot, and the cover-up would continue. But look at verse 13. David responds to Nathan in a way that few kings ever responded to a prophet. Verse 13, it says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned and fallen short of the... Uh, I, I've sinned against the Lord. I'm sorry. I've sinned against the Lord. Now, what do you think he meant when he said, I've sinned against the Lord? You know, there are a number of times in the Bible where people said, I have sinned. And there was no genuine repentance behind it. Think about it. Pharaoh several times told Moses, I've sinned. But there was no repentance there. He was just trying to get out of the consequences and get the current plague to stop, right? Think about King Saul. He said, I've sinned against the Lord, but he was just trying to uh, avoid losing his influence and losing his kingdom and his power, right? Um, Think of Balaam. Balaam said, I have sinned, but there was no genuine repentance there. He was just trying to manipulate his way into getting what he wanted. And then Judas threw the coins back into the temple, and he said, I've sinned and betrayed innocent blood, but he really wasn't sorry for what he had done. He was just sorry that it didn't work out the way that he had hoped and that he had planned. But David says, I have sinned. And here, there's genuine repentance in his expression. And this is where we want to pause for just a moment and kind of look a little bit deeper at what's going on in David as he says, I have sinned, right? And so to do that, we're going to look back at Psalm 51 now and look at David's heart in his prayer. I mean, he really pours out his soul and uh, he really shows what's going on in this repentance, all right? So let's look at it, Psalm 51. And instead of going verse by verse and unpacking it, what we'll do is I'm going to read the entire Psalm and really get a feel uh, for it. And then we'll make a few observations and applications from it, all right? So David said, Psalm 51. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict. And justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. 
yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. Amen. That is a tremendous prayer of repentance. And there's several things I kind of want you to notice in this psalm, several heart attitudes that David displays in this prayer that make it a powerful and effective prayer that made a difference. So let's look at them. All right, the first one is this. It's humility. I mean, there's an awful lot of humility in this prayer, right? I mean, look how often David says, me or my here. It's, it's my transgression. It's, it's my iniquity. It's, it's my sin, right? I mean, there's not a word of blame here for anyone else. I mean, think about it. When Adam was confronted with his sin in the garden, what did he say? He said, yeah, it was, it was the woman that you gave me that made me do this, right? So it's her fault, and God, it might be your fault too. And then when Eve is confronted, what did she say? She said, well, it was the serpent, God, that you put here. It's really not my fault. It's the serpent, and God, it might be your fault as well. And by the way, have you noticed that ever since that day, how often humanity blames God for the consequences of what they're doing? Right? Somehow God's at fault, right? Well, for evil. Well, you know, why is there evil in the world? Well, well people are doing evil, right? But God, it might be your fault. Think of a, a King Saul. It was the people who, who made me disobey. It's really not my fault, right? There's something about human nature that just wants to shift the blame somewhere else. No, God, the buck doesn't stop here. It just goes somewhere else. Watch this short montage that Emily put together um, of some children and some other creatures shifting the blame. Okay, we're never going to talk about this, you two. Something happened here on the wall. Who did that? Jackson, did you do that? Um, nope. He did that. No, I did not. I really did it. Okay.
Okay, well, when I walked in the room, you looked like you were hiding something. A ghost? No, a ghost definitely did not do that. Who stole the cookie off the counter? Hey, what did you do? You made a mess? It looks like you made a mess. What happened? No. You put it on the floor? No. You put Coda did it? Not only do we like to blame other people, but the people we blame don't like being blamed, right? Someone else is really responsible. You know, when I was a kid, my mother, I used to hear her tell my, my father that she thought that they had a fourth invisible child living with them whose name was not me. Because every time she asked me and my two brothers, you know, who broke the thing or who ate the bag of chips in two minutes flat, you know, we all said together, it was not me. Who did it? Right? And, uh, you know, if you want to hear some great stories about passing the buck, just talk to a police officer. You know, you see, officer, I, I really had to coast through that stop sign. It really wasn't my fault because, you know, when I looked in my rearview mirror, you were so close that I was afraid that if I came to a complete stop, you would rear-end me. And, and, and so, you see, um, I actually saved you some time and, re and paperwork and all of that type of thing. And, 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 and so, you're welcome. Right? And... Uh, you know, or my favorite one is this. Uh, a, a, a pastor friend of mine who used to be a police officer in Georgia um, told me that uh, his favorite blame-shifting line was, Officer, these aren't my pants. He'd be arresting somebody and searching them and find something illegal on them. And first thing he'd say, Officer, these aren't my pants. And he'd be like, well, these aren't your pants. Well, um, I mean, where'd you get them? Did you steal them? Oh, no. I mean, whose are they? Well, I'm not sure. Well, well who's got your pants? Well, shouldn't we find them? Maybe you could switch pants. And, and it seemed to him that all the criminals in Georgia were always wearing somebody else's pants all the time. I mean, blame shifting. These, these are not my pants. The first step to receiving grace and mercy, if you did something wrong, is to have some humility and accept responsibility instead of blaming someone else. David blamed nobody else took full responsibility for what he had done. And so this leads to our second at heart attitude that we see here. And it's this, confession. David confessed what he had done to God. And the idea here is to admit or declare or make an emphatic assertion about something specific. Yes, that's the thing. I did it and it was wrong. And in biblical usage, the, the idea of confession has the idea of agreeing with God, or to say the same thing about a situation that God says about it. Like when Achan had, had taken some of the forbidden plunder, and uh, eventually God found him out and, and showed the whole community who it was, and Joshua told him to confess, give glory to God, or say the same thing that God is saying about it. It's kind of like this. You know, what my, my youngest daughter, Melody, you all know her and love her, right? But when she was very, very young, and uh, just a uh, toddler, uh, or preschooler, Sometimes she'd come out, I remember she'd come out of the kitchen and uh, she'd have cookie crumbs on her uh, shirt and all that and chocolate around her mouth. And, and Jill would say to her, uh, Melody, 
did you eat that cookie that I told you not to eat before dinner? And she'd look up and say, oh, no, Mom, uh, no. No, no, not at all. And she would look at her and say, well, what did Jesus see? And she'd go all the pieces and go, ah, he saw me eat the cookie. Ah, ah, and I liked it. Ah. You know, she's all just a mess. I am not exaggerating at all, am I? Right? And she would, uh, uh, and then would deal with the situation and go on. What did Jesus see? Confession is saying the same thing about a situation that God says about it. It's agreeing with God about what happened. And David here uses three words several times over to describe what he had done. Let's look at that. The first time they occur is in verses 1 and 2. He says, Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Now, look at that word transgression for a second there. The word here, transgression, means acts of rebellion. The idea is defying God by crossing over a line. God draws a line and says, hey, everything on this side, that's good. You can be all over here. But don't cross this line. On the other side of that line, that's wrong. That's sin. And David, in using this word, he's confessing that he knew where the line was. He knew it was wrong. And he willfully and rebelliously just crossed over the line in defiance of God's will. And then look at the word iniquity. Now, this word looks a little bit more at what's going on in the heart of the person who's doing the transgressing, right? In the heart of the person who's doing the crossing over the line. And it has the idea of inward crookedness, of perverseness of heart, or of things not being right in the heart. And David, in using this word, is confessing that his motivations when he transgressed were not right. He's not saying, well, listen, the thing I did was wrong, but my heart was in the right place. No, his heart was not in the right place when he did that, right? He says, I did wrong, and the motivations of my heart were not right when I did it. And then look at that word sin there. The word here means to miss the mark. The idea is, you know, you should have had your uh, uh, character up here. You should have had your actions up here. But they came in way down here. And David, in using this word, he's confessing in the matter. He did, in fact, fall far short of what God expected of him. So in using all three of these words over and over again uh, in this confession, you get the sense that he's holding nothing back. He's saying, yeah, God, I, I, it's completely my fault. The motivations of my heart were wrong. I crossed over the line, and my actions fell far short of what you were expecting of me. And then lastly about David's confession, just look at how specific it was. Look at verse 14. He says, save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. And this here is it's a direct reference to the fact that he is guilty of the death of Uriah. You remember Balaam? We mentioned Balaam a couple of times, right? When Balaam's path was all reckless and God sent an angel uh, to rebuke him, and when Balaam saw the angel, he knew something was wrong. He even admitted that maybe probably he sinned, but there was no confession of anything specific. He just says, you know, if you're displeased, I'll go back, right? And uh, it leads to his destruction. Well, there's none of that here with David, right? He, He says, well, this is what I did. I am guilty of that man's blood. He's dead because of me. If you want God's grace and mercy, when you've done something wrong, then have the humility to agree with God about take responsibility and confess what you've done. And that leads to this next heart condition is genuine sorrow. Verse 17, David says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not 
despised. You know, it's possible to confess and not be sorry about anything at all. Now, it might be rare. Most times when people are saying, are confessing something, there's some, some sorrow when they know something's wrong, right? But how many of you have ever heard someone say, you know, you know I know that was wrong, but I'd just do it again? Or, or someone say, you know, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I don't care. I'm going to keep on doing it anyway. Confession without a broken heart or contrite heart will get you nowhere. But look what David says happens when there's genuine sorrow over sin. He says, a broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. God won't reject that. God accepts that. So if you want God's grace and mercy, start with the humility of responsibility. Confess honestly. Have genuine contrition and brokenness. Then two more things. The next thing, the next heart attitude we see in David's powerful prayer of repentance is an appeal for mercy. Listen to these verses. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. David appeals for God's mercy. And note here, there's no appeal for penance here. David doesn't ask, you know, God, give me a list of a bunch of things I can do to make up for this and counterbalance that sin, right? He doesn't say, you know, God, maybe maybe if I go to battle and save the lives of ten warriors, that'll make up for the one life that I, that, that I, that I took, right? He doesn't say anything like that. It doesn't work that way. You can't just do an, enough good works to make up for your sin, right? There's no way you can earn God's forgiveness. Isaiah says all of our righteousness is as filthy rags in his sight. But that's not the end of the story. Aren't you glad for that? Hallelujah, that's not the end of the story. Um, what we can't do, God does for us. I mean, that's what mercy and grace are all about. It's why Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He died, it says, the just for the unjust. That's us. We're the unjust. He's the just. He died the just for the unjust to bring us to God. Paul said it this way. He said, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, when Jesus died, it wasn't just a bad thing that happened to a good guy. right? It wasn't just some cosmic injustice or something like that. But it was the very Son of God going to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. To do what we could never ever do for ourselves. To become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And not just the world in general, but your sin. To become the Lamb of God who takes away your sin, takes away my sin. He did it so that we could have mercy and grace extended to us. And that's what David is asking for here. He's saying, God, I can't pay for my sin. God, there's nothing I can do about it. Please wash me. Please cleanse me. Blot out my sins. That's the mercy that's available to us only through Jesus. And then last we, we see in this prayer uh, a repentance and a walking in faith. A repentance and a walking in faith. Now, you know, some people 
define repentance as being sorry or saying, saying you're sorry for your sin, right? And, and we just saw that genuine sorrow and contrition is, is part of the process, right? But if we stop there, repentance is really incomplete. Repentance is really kind of what continues afterwards. It's, it's the follow-through, right? The biblical idea of repentance uh, carries with it the idea of turning. You're going one way, and now you're going a different way. You were going one direction, now you're going another. You were following, you know, after the sinful nature and, and pleasing its desires and its wants. And now instead of that, now you're following after the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit and walking uh, in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've turned from all that. And so, so it's accompanied by and goes hand in hand with a walk of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in God. Now, look at these verses uh, in this chapter. He says, then... I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will come back to you. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Right now, those things, they're not acts of righteousness righteousness that earn salvation. They come after the cleansing. They're the spiritual response to the cleansing that God does in us. Repentance and walk of faith. So here's what we see in David's powerful prayer of repentance. Humility and responsibility. Confession, contrition, mercy, and grace, and repentance, and faith. And so as we get ready to close this morning, in just a few minutes we're going to be celebrating communion together. How do we apply these ideas to our walk with Jesus? How do we respond to this as the body of Christ? Well, let me suggest to you there's two kind of uh, extremes to avoid. Right? The first is this. The first is legalism. Right? Legalism encounters sin. And wants to overcome it with human effort. And, you know, I've heard a number of people teach, I don't know if you have, teach in almost a way that either says or, or really strongly gives the idea that a Christian loses their salvation every time they sin. Every time a person, a, a Christian sins, they lose their salvation until they finally uh, repent and say they're sorry and then they're saved again. And uh, that's not really a Bible idea. I call this yo-yo salvation. All right? Kind of yo-yo salvation. You're up, then you're down. Up, down, up, down. Yo-yo salvation, right? Or revolving door salvation, right? In and out and in and out and in and out and in and out, right? Just going in and out of salvation. That, that's not a Bible idea, right? It turns confession into a work of salvation rather than a relational experience with God. It's oppressive. It leads people to eventually stop confessing sin when it happens or just deny it, right? And, and ignore it. Pretend it's not there because, you know, because of the cycle or the perception of bouncing in and out of salvation is just so wearisome. And so it becomes easier to just deny or ignore it when it happens. And that's a problem because what the Apostle John said, you know, if um, we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us, Right? But the second extreme to avoid is license. And license is this idea that says, you know, because Jesus paid for all my sins and I can just go out and sin all I want. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't affect me. I can go just, just live in sin over here and it just doesn't matter. And that's too, is a deception. Paul tells the, the Corinthian believers, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. John says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues in sin has either seen him or known him. So there's a difference between committing sin and living in sin. There's a difference between committing a sin and being ruled by and controlled by and living in the sinful nature. And some people think that, well, then the sweet spot 
between that legalism and the license is somewhere like halfway in between. Some balance between that. Can I tell you, there's no balance between legalism and license. You know, and I've said this before. I want to say it one more time here. Legalism and license are twin brothers that both glory in the works of the flesh and result in spiritual death. But the liberty of God, it's not halfway in between. It's something that's on a different plane altogether. It's based on different truths altogether. It's based on what Jesus did on the cross in his death and his resurrection and in his ascension into heaven and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on us so that we're on a different plane altogether. Instead of living somewhere along this plane, um, going back and forth between legalism and license, here we are on this plane of walking in the Spirit, in the grace of God. And I think that that's where this powerful prayer of repentance needs to dwell and needs to live. It rejects legalism, and so it's not a work of righteousness. And it rejects license and refuses to be controlled by sin. Instead, it helps us deal with sin when it happens on the basis of the New Testament covenant established by our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it becomes an expression of a relationship with God. The Apostle John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In Psalm 51, David beautifully illustrates what a repentant heart looks like. It has the humility of responsibility, honest confession, genuine sorrow and contrition, an appeal to grace and mercy, and repentance and a walk of faith. This is the powerful prayer of repentance. And so with those thoughts in mind, what better time than this for us as a body of Christ to celebrate communion together, to celebrate what Jesus did for us, to make this mercy and this grace possible. So I'm going to ask you, if you have your communion elements right now, if you would go ahead and begin uh, to get them ready. And as you do, I'm going to ask Emily, could you just sing the chorus of that one song? Um, And as she sings, just begin to let the Holy Spirit talk to your heart about the things that we've heard in the Word today. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good With every breath that I am able I will sing of the goodness of God Now one more time All my life All my life you have been received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according
according to the Scripture. He goes on to say, For what I received from the Lord, what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for giving your body for us, for willingly coming here, for being beaten and bruised and nailed to the cross for us. We remember what you did for us and we're thankful. Let us partake together. says in the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes Lord Jesus we remember how you shed your blood for us how you willingly let your hands have nails uh, driven through them your feet and they 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 put a sword into your side crown of thorns on your head we remember that you willingly shed your blood for us the just for the unjust to bring us to God and we are thankful this morning Jesus thank you for dying for us Jesus thank you for shedding your blood for us God may each day God we live in thankful remembrance of what you have done for us let us partake together Would you stand with me one more time? Would you all sing out this uh, chorus with us um, in thankfulness and gratitude to everything that God is and has done for us? All my life. All my life you have been faithful. Yes, God. Yes, God. All my life you have been so, so of your goodness, sing of your grace, sing of your mercy, God. And God, I pray for each person here, God, that your blessing and your favor would rest on them today and all week long, God. Uh, your grace poured out to each one, God. Father, I pray that uh, you'd enable us not to walk in legalism, not to walk in license, but to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit with humility, God, with confession, God, with uh, grace and mercy poured on us, God, and uh, uh, God, with uh, faith, God, for every step of every day. Bless your people, God, for it's in the name of Jesus we pray. And everyone said... Amen and amen. God bless you. If there's anyone who needs special prayer for anything, I will wait down here for a while. And if you need special prayer or anything like that, please feel comfortable coming down and receiving that. All right. God bless you. Have a great week in the name of Jesus.